Uh, so you get these transformations that I have not seen with any other treatment modality. And I have, I, unlike most researchers who find one particular treatment method and study, beat the same treatment method to death by studying the same damn thing over and over again, my career has been that I'm interested in what else might be helpful. Uh, so I've studied yoga, turned out very well. I've studied EMDR, I've started theater groups, I've studied neurofeedback, I've studied various drug, um, psychiatric medications. But what we see in the MDMA is really more profound than anything else we have done. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome so much to our first episode in our new podcast by us at the Psykolog Virke. Psykolog Virke, we are a psychotherapy clinic based in Oslo, Norway. Um, my name is Eystein Ottesnettet. I am a clinical psychologist here, and with me is also my colleague Ivar Valderhaug-Gokser, clinical psychologist and the founder of Psykolog Virke. So we have been so fortunate to start off with having a conversation that we've been looking forward to immensely with Bessel van der Kolk. We have been very appreciative of him throughout the years. Um, he's one of the leading experts on psychological trauma and its treatment. He has had an impactful and prolific professional life, both in the research setting and also clinically. Uh, in addition, he is a very prolific and important communicator uh, of knowledge of trauma and its treatment to the general public. Uh, especially through his published works, uh, such as The Body Keeps the Score. Um, that's from 2014. Uh, and actually came out in a Norwegian translation just last year, uh, titled Kroppenholder Reinskap. So specifically, we wanted to talk to uh, Bessel today uh, because he has been involved in this new, uh, very exciting uh, research endeavor, and that of uh, the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy uh, for people struggling with trauma. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, media attention around, uh, but um, Basil van der Kolk is, is one of the people who would actually uh, know what this is about, um, especially considering his role as uh, principal investigator in the now finished and published phase three trials of the MDMA as a psychotherapy uh, coming out of, uh, in his case, Boston. So we're very interested in uh, hearing his experiences and thoughts uh, about the research. And uh, yeah, let's just take it away. All right, so uh, Bessel, uh, I we would really like to welcome you to our conversation today. Um, so uh, we have been very excited to talk to you for, uh, for a long time. Um, so being involved in, in this cutting, new ed, um, cutting edge new research endeavor, so that of the MDMA as a psychotherapy for people suffering with trauma. So actually, we would love to just hear a little bit about your experiences um, in your role as principal investigator in the phase three, uh, three trials coming out of Boston. So, so Basil, um, first, I'm just curious, how, how did you get involved in this research in the first place? What kind of stirred your I interest? I don't quite remember how it started. Uh, it started 15 years ago when uh, Rick, Rick Doblin and Michael Midhofer actually consulted with me about what I thought about using psychedelics for PTSD. And we had a very nice lunch together. And I said it was a great idea, but they shouldn't do it because these drugs are illegal. And I went through the previous incarnation of doing psychedelic therapies. I actually happened to have Timothy Leary's old office at Harvard at some point. And of course, I'm a child of the 60s, so I had my own psychedelic experience as a young guy. And, uh, and then in 1994, I did a symposium at the American Psychiatric Association, where I called together a lot of the old LSD researchers and have them review what they found. And I found at that point that they were some of the most depressed people I had ever met because they had started off with something fantastic and then uh, the politics took over and these drugs were declared illegal 
And so these poor guys who had done that research uh, felt that they had wasted their lives. And they told Vic and Michael, don't do it because you will probably feel like you wasted your life. Also, because the politics of using these drugs is just too cumbersome. And so much to my astonishment, uh, the two of them were able to get permission to do a phase one study that worked out quite well. And then do phase two study it was mainly Michael Mithoffer at a point. And then when they started phase three study, they asked me if I wanted to be principal investigator of the Boston side of the study. And I said, I'd be delighted. And I mainly joined at that point um, as a, it's not my natural character, but as a weight to keep things very serious and very, um, uh, very strict because I had seen how it blew up last time. And I'm still worried, even with our current data, that our societies will have a hard time tolerating this, this amazing transformation. And the fact is that people will change in a way that our capitalistic systems may not be happy with. And one of the recurrent findings, both in Robin Carhart Harris's psilocybin studies and the Hopkins studies and now our MDMA study is that when people take these substances, they their perception of the world changes and they become much more focused on loving each other and on not working so hard and not um, being so harsh about things. And so um, it goes in the way against some of the core tenets of Western, particularly American culture, uh, where you just work yourself to death and love takes a secondary role. So um, it continues to be an issue of great uh, concern about what will happen with this and how the world will accept it. In the meantime, we did finish the study and the results were spectacular. And I, I don't know whether you saw my presentation at the trauma conference last week, where I actually presented the data that are not published yet uh, about self-compassion and self-regulation and alexithymia and understanding yourself. To my mind, the data I presented last week were the most interesting data yet on uh, on MDMA in that uh, uh, measuring whether PTSD improves is sort of like, blah, you know, we know how to treat PTSD with other methods and MAPS likes to say, oh, we don't know how to treat PTSD. And that's because they have a perception of the Veterans Administration that only follows methods that we don't, we know don't work. But for those of us who work in the civilian sector, we have very great successes with EMDR and brain spotting and neurofeedback and uh, internal family system therapy. So the, the, the PTSD per se is not our great challenge. But the, the great challenge is the issues that um, my group and I delineated over the years of the secondary effect of uh, interpersonal trauma, namely on your capacity to feel safe with people, to love yourself, to find yourself a worthwhile human being, to uh, not be frightened about all kinds of different things, to be open, to be curious. And that is not what's being measured in the main study that makes the big presses, but we did a secondary data analysis. And I've done research for 50 years. I've never seen anything like it. It is stunning. Wow. Mm. And, uh, and the data that we collected very much are in line what we saw clinically in our subjects in our study. Uh, I have one of the great pleasures of doing a study like this. Our sites are small. I imagine your site in Norway will also at the end be relatively small because it's very expensive and very complex to enroll people in this very difficult protocol. So it is, it's, uh, we have only a limited number of people. But every single subject that we saw had a remarkable experience of going very deeply inside. Uh, and this is no picnic. This is not an experience like, oh, we see God and we see great transcendent realities and we feel so much better. 
people actually go into their trauma and they lie there and they suffer as they go into it. But the natural defenses that keeps people from going there seem to dissolve with MDMA. So people have their experiences and say, yeah, I was raped when I was three years old. And then they go like, this poor kid, this poor child who I once was, that I had to go through it. And the big thing that we seem to see and that our data also see, uh, seem to support is that the MDMA is capable of giving people a very deep sense of self-compassion. So rather than hating themselves for being as weak as they were when it happened or not putting up more resistance or taking it so hard, um, all the different things that people blame themselves for when they get traumatized, uh, they go into a state of deep self-compassion where they feel uh, the depth of the pain that they're carrying and to say, yes, this happened to me. Isn't it amazing that I'm still alive after having gone through this experience? And that experience happened five years ago or 10 years ago or when I was three years old. But today it is June 2021 and I'm alive. Uh, so you get these transformations that I have not seen with any other treatment modality. And I have, I, unlike most researchers who find one particular treatment method and study, beat the same treatment method to death by studying the same damn thing over and over again, my career has been that I'm interested in what else might be helpful. Uh, so I've studied yoga, turned out very well. I've studied EMDR, I've started theater groups, I've studied neurofeedback, I've studied various drug, um, psychiatric medications. But what we see in the MDMA is really more profound than anything else we have done. Indeed, because of the Federal Drug Administration, we call it the treatment for PTSD. But it's, it's like some other, like yoga and neurofeedback study. It's not a trauma treatment. It's a self-treatment. It's, it's a treatment about uh, this is who I am. These are the parts of my life that I've experienced. And so it happens to involve trauma because that's what we select for it. But it's not a trauma treatment. It's a mind-expanding treatment. And so... And the whole word post-traumatic growth, I don't like that term. I see it as a counter-transference term. There is nothing great about getting gang raped or beaten up by your father. Uh, you know, I think the word post-traumatic growth, I don't like at all, actually. Yes, traumatized people have to find very creative uh, ways of dealing with all that misery, but I don't call it post-traumatic growth. I call it... They know stuff that other people don't know and need to live by them. Is um, in the medical model, which I've sort of left, uh, your basic premise is I'm normal and you're screwed up. And I'm going to give you a treatment at the end of which you're just as normal as I am. I think mm -hmm. that's a crazy premise. We all are suffering human beings. We all have had major disappointments, we have had hurt, we have had pain in our lives, some more than others. But we're, what we're dealing with, we deal with the human condition. And some people get stuck because life got to be too much of them and the unlucky ones and some of us were lucky enough to have the resources and the support to deal with our, the misery that came our way. But I don't see this normal people versus abnormal people, traumatized people versus non-traumatized people. That's not my perception of the world anymore. Right. That's an important, uh, important point. So how our lang the language we use can be used to alienate uh, uh, or create a sense of alienation or an, uh, us versus them. The, uh, the same thing with treatment resistant, that kind of term, which kind of puts oh, yeah. the blame on the individual yeah, rather the than... This is what people should say, I have not learned yet how to deal with a person like you. And the treatments that I know uh, are failing you to get better. So rather than putting the onus on 
that person who comes to you for help, you say, oh, I've not learned enough to do it yet. And then people apply their stupid little treatments. They say, oh, the patient is treatment resistant. Instead of saying, I'm resistant to learn new things. Mm -hmm. As a therapist. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And I, I wanted to, to, um, to ask, uh, maybe it's a good time for me to chime in a bit, Toistan. Um, you know, as, as part of uh, the training of being a therapist in, in these studies, uh, uh, also uh, the therapists are um, allowed to enroll in, um, in a, a training, like having MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as part of the training in the FDA-approved um, protocol. And I know also you, Basil, have uh, undergone that like, like I did. And for me, for sure, it was an, a profound experience. And even though it came late in my involvement in this field, it, it for sure was a important how to say confirmation that i'm on the right track you know uh, devoting some time of my career and life to to promote this work uh, would you like to share some of your own experiences uh, doing that training well uh, I, i'm actually curious <laughs> to ask you what your experience was um uh, but let me tell you about my experience uh, so i have a friend who is a former commissioner of child protective services in Massachusetts. And he told me that a number of years ago, he went to Bolivia and took ayahuasca. And while he took ayahuasca, all the abused children in the world who ever lived came to visit him. And I went like, oh my God. And you live to tell the tale because nothing makes you more desperate than seeing how many abused children there are in the world. And so my friend told me extensively about his experience and how at the end it helped him. And I said to him, well, good for you. I hope that never happens to me. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> I took my MDMA, which is probably not as powerful as ayahuasca. And all the traumatized people I had treated came to visit me, not in a cognitive way, I just experienced all the pain that people had done to me in my 50 year work of seeing traumatized people. And I was just lying there going, oh shit, oh no. Are you sure this is a party drug? Because I just <laughs> felt all the pain that had been unloaded to me. And up to that point, People ask me all the time, yesterday I was still on the podcast, same thing happens. People say, so how do you deal with all this stuff? And I always said to people, oh, as long as you have a good support system and as long as you have a good marriage and you have good friends and you get to talk about your stuff, it doesn't really become part of you. Well, I was wrong. And so on MDMA, I got to see that indeed this stuff had come inside of me and had burrowed itself into my very core of my being. And so it was a transformative experience where I got much more respect for what it's like to actually carry all this pain uh, that people dump on you. And it, think it affected me, my perception of things. Um, and to some degree, that is very similar to what our study participants also experienced. They experience their trauma as not a picnic, but they say, that's how it is. That's what happened to me. And so um, that was my experience. And but it's also important, and you, you know it, or you will know it, as you do study, uh, the people who are your guides or your company are just there. They don't do very much. Actually, you do all the work. Uh, Michael Midhoffer just spoke at my annual conference, and he said something that really resonated with me, he said, I used to be an emergency doc room doctor. And all I did in the emergency room, people would come in wounded and hurt, and I would clean their wounds. And so by cleaning their wounds, I did not make the wounds heal. The body heals its own wounds. As a doctor, the only thing I did is to clean out the side of the lesion, so the natural healing processes of the body would be able to do, take their place. And boy, that's exactly how it is. Uh, as a therapist, you don't do the healing. We shouldn't even call ourselves healers. We should call ourselves guides or 
um, wound breathers had to make it possible for people for the healing process to take place but they you you do the healing and all people do for you is to be there as you go through this very painful process yeah that's that's beautiful uh, i i can relate uh, at least partly to to your experience uh, this uh, you know part of it was deeply personal and um, and uh, discovering you know more trauma in my own life than i actually realized in a way or there was nothing new coming up but but, but really the, the depth of the things that i already knew about and the impact they actually had and it was quite amazing after having had quite a lot of useful therapy before in my life to see how much there still was to see and in a way how easy it was to see through everything and and straight yeah. to the truth and that's remarkable because we have our internal ways of coping by walling things off and putting it away and of course that's very good for people people need to do that but the mdma allows you to be uh, one way of putting it is to be more honest with yourself and to allow reality to come in the reality that at that time may have been too hard for us to handle yeah for sure yeah. i also had uh, this uh, uh, some some part of the experience really uh, taking in all the pain of all the people living today and all our ancestors and um, in a way it was a really hard experience but it was also a lot of comfort in it in a way and a lot of you know shared humanity uh, in a way you know just uh, realizing how much we're the same uh, yeah. you know and there might not be so much special about my pain it, it comes in a different form and you know and of course there are levels and, and some people are more unlucky than others but still there is something profoundly you know human and common so I, I really enjoyed what you said about uh, this distinction between the patients and us and and, and all this also uh, it's really important and I would really like to see also studies being set up for mental health professionals uh, with MDMA to, to give people that possibility to experience uh, on such depths their own psychology. So, you, you know, I, I, I'm really glad with what you said because it's all also my experience. Um, what I'm worried about indeed is that once people hear you and me talk, yeah. They'll go like, oh my God, I'm going to do this weekend and do it. Sure. And I wonder how we can sort of keep these things contained. And so I think we're lucky to be here at the beginning of this revelation, basically, when things are still well organized and uh, nobody's trying to make money off it yet or nobody's trying to exploit it yet. So I'm worried what will happen to this. Um, because no, last time people had the same experience back in the 60s. And then it's really, people got so enthusiastic that things went out of control. And as I hear you speak, I go like, where can I get this damn drug? So the question is, how do, are people capable of managing the profound manifestations that come from this work, actually? Yeah, know. sure. Yeah. I would also like to add that even though the experience itself was profound and, and, and I really felt that some, some pieces were uh, healed, like some symptoms were gone of anxiety. I didn't even know it was anxiety. I thought it was kind of a motivation. It was trauma related uh, when it came to episodes or things uh, involving responsibilities always triggered anxiety in me even though you know I'm, I'm pretty good at spotting anxiety in my patients but uh, th this one I thought it was just uh, motivation <laughs> and uh, for of course trauma related from uh, you know taking a lot of responsibility from a young age as, as many psychologists and other helpers do um, you know so but but still uh, you know life is also uh, recognizable after the experience and uh, a lot of stuff is you know a work in progress and uh, some things are not worked through at all yet yeah. uh, so uh, the idea of it being a wonder drug or a magic pill is is uh, of course uh, in a way it, it is remarkable and it does very deep things but there's also limitations and, and the work has to be done yeah and I think there's a lot to be learned in this regard also 
in that the protocol for our study, as you know, is people get three sessions. Uh, you and I, as investigator, only got one session. And actually, I wish I had three sessions. Um, and I'm sure I will before too long. Um, and, but with many of our subjects, their histories were incredibly complex. Their lives were complex beyond the wildest, our wildest imagination. And we saw them grow tremendously, but I felt like a number of them should have had some more sessions. Um, and so the protocol confined them too much along the lines of what you're talking about, is that uh, these should be experiences that should be used and should be grown into and we visit it on a regular basis. One of the main things that I sort of am left with from our study is that uh, and COVID has really had a major impact here, is that we have been so isolated for a long time. Yeah? And I think what we need more of is retreat centers and places where we can go to have these very sacred experiences uh, on a regular basis and our societies should actually uh, have centers where people can go not only on the basis of how much money you earn but to make it available for people you can actually take a retreat to rediscover yourself and i think we need to have more context in which this can occur okay th but thanks for sharing basil and of course this is uh, our personal uh, experiences it can be interesting and it can be interesting for the listeners to to get to 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 you know to to know you a little bit yeah. but still uh, the, the main thing here is of course uh, you know the data uh, what they're telling us and and why we should pay attention to this modality and maybe also get involved and and do some work and support for it so so you mentioned uh, you know some great results presented at the conference would you like to go into a little bit more detail uh, there uh, what you found well, see the the, the 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 results in terms of numbers are interesting the results in terms of experiences are even more interesting and so the so-called science piece of it is the little numbers uh, with a little rating scale we give people that we hope will capture some aspect of people's internal experience. Of course, rating scales rarely do that. Huh? Um, Self-report measures rarely do that. But the, the data are that two-thirds of the people lost their PTSD diagnosis. In my studies, that is one measure I use, but actually I use another measure, and that's a measure of resolution of the trauma and uh, in the maps analysis of our study we did not look at that actually uh, uh, it's not whether your cap score uh, has a certain percentage drop uh, the first time i did uh, emdr research uh, the first time i was confronted with the notion that patients told me it is over the trauma is gone not my ptsd score declined by a certain percentage but people said yeah it's over i was molested as a child but i'm not molested now it used to sit in my body but no longer sits in my body and that is very much the experience that we saw in our exit interviews with our subjects but our measurements did not capture that our measurements just look what is your ptsd score but so the secondary data analysis to me was fascinating in that the issue of self-compassion just was gigantic that people stopped judging themselves and people stopped beating up on themselves and people had a sense of internal generosity and they had the capacity for uh, self-acceptance and with that of other people accepting of other people uh, so they no longer were defending against parts of themselves that they couldn't stand and projecting on other people they saw oh you get angry just like i do or you get uptight just like i do so you get much more of a sense of of we are all in this together and we all have our crazy reactions and so these secondary measures really caught that very nicely um one thing that really struck me in the secondary analysis uh was the alexithymia scale. Alexithymia is a very complex word. 
that most people don't know what it means, but what it means is a lack of capacity to identify what you're feeling, to have no language for what you're feeling, which is very highly correlated with childhood neglect and abuse, basically. I see this and see my grandchildren uh, growing up, and what they see is these children learn how to identify who they are and to talk about what they feel and what makes them feel good and what makes them feel bad. It's very much a part of becoming a well-functioning human beings is that you know what this creature that you inhabit feels and knows and needs to be done. Uh, so elixothermia is a measure of, of not knowing that. And elixothermia is very much something correlated with people having no um, caregivers who help them to mirror them and say this is what you're feeling and this is the impact and there's no dialogue. Huh? Or my favorite phrase there is what John Bowlby said, uh, Bowlby said, what cannot be told to the mother or the other cannot be told to the self. Uh, so as long as you live with caregivers who don't see you, um, that really impairs your capacity to know who you are and what you're feeling. And indeed, uh, the vast majority of our subjects had terrible elixithymia scores. Then they have three lousy sessions of MDMA and they know what they're feeling and they have language for their feeling and they can articulate what's who they are. You know, this is a huge issue in the field right now. I don't know if you follow the work of my close colleague and friend Ruth Lanius, um, who is talking more and more about the neuroscience of self-experience and self-knowledge. And so the latest neuroscience stuff in the area of trauma is very much about the loss of sense of self that comes with trauma. And what you see in the MDMA, people have a self. They say, this is who I am. This is what I feel. This is what's important to me. That's what's unimportant to me. And I'm no longer dependent on what you feel to dictate what I feel, but I have my own feelings. So we saw this in our study clinically, not in our outcome measures. For example, we had some people who had were, in, were in very nasty, abusive relationships. And rather than saying, my husband or my wife is such a terrible person who does all these terrible things, they said, I'm actually married to a very dysfunctional person and I need to negotiate what I need in a calm way because this is what I need. And so uh, I was astounded how uh, two of our subjects were able to negotiate uh, exiting their relationships in a very calm and mindful way without blowing up or becoming threatening or becoming all uptight. They say, this is what I need and this is what I can do right now. I see who you are, so this is how we can negotiate our relationship. It's just really stunning, that sense of self that came online. Um, and we have some data that I'm actually trying to write up right now, which I hope will become a very important article in the field. So really interesting uh, data and, and experiences you, you're telling us. Um, so, so we were, um, you, you mentioned the, the healing coming from within and the MDMA and the therapists acting as kind of um, a nurturing environment for that process to take place in a sense. The word guide is, is a good word, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way you go mountain climbing, you have a guide, but you have to do the damn climbing. <laughs> right. So, so guiding the, the, the process uh, inwards in a way for the, for the, uh, the drug to make it, uh, make its work. Uh, so we have this term, the inner healing intelligence, right, in, in, in this uh, re research, um, where the, the healing capacities of the, the individual comes forward and uh, manifests really as a bodily process as well, right? Um, of course, your 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 uh, your famous book, uh, "The Body Keeps the Score," um, not perhaps only for people with trauma, but for for all of us, that the body can be forgotten in a kind of hyper intellectualized culture as well. Um, 
could you say a, a bit uh, more about what these participants are experiencing in terms of changes in their body or other their movements during the therapy, uh, unfinished movements, uh, perhaps, uh, or different way of relating to the body? Well, it's a very, it's a very good question. Uh, it's also a question that I have. And to my mind, our team, and I think most of the teams doing this work, uh, are not very experienced body therapists. And so uh, you see these reactions in the body, but um, I think very few people who are doing the studies right now are really trained enough to really use the body sensations to comfort people. They really don't know touch and they don't know about the experience of touch. And so this dimension is a terribly important dimension, but in our study, both in the training and the outcome, uh, this has been insufficiently paid attention to. But it's interesting, as you and I are talking, I'm getting messages from uh, Ruth Lanius and her team because we have decided to do a touch study um, to see how touch and body sensation is critical in trauma because basically our field is still, oh, there's an event in your head, let's do some cognitive behavioral treatment on it. and. What you see in MDMA is a deeply somatic experience. At some point, I, in my own experience, actually, my body started to cramp up and I was with these lovely guides, but they, they tried to do something, but it was very awkward and it felt awkward. But my wife happens to be a, a, body, a body therapist, actually. She's a body worker. And so she happened to be in the neighborhood, so they called me and said, will you please work with him? And so she worked with me to help my body to calm down. And But I wish, uh, as we train people, that we would train people, the therapists or the guides better on how to uh, hold people to feel that, make their bodies feel safer. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, and perhaps the, the, the sense of safety in one's own body or kind of um, the demarcation uh, between myself and outer world can become blurred after a trauma where one's integrity of the body has been violated, right? Yeah. So, so is there a sense of MDMA uh, making the body uh, uh, a place to uh, to be inside uh, w without like the the horror uh, of anxiety, yeah. right? I think to, to some degree the current protocol helps with that, but I think we can do better in that regard. And so I'm curious what you guys will run into in Norway and Holland as you do the studies in Europe. So we can have this conversation two years from now to see what else do we need to be better guides. Um, what are your uh, primary uh, concerns? Uh, you have mentioned some of them uh, regarding how, how will kind of neoliberalism take this um, uh, and um, the, yeah, in, in our culture, maybe the Protestant uh, working ethics. Um, yeah, being a firm victim of the Protestant ethic, I accept that. What I'm most worried about actually is the capitalist system, and that, which of course is less prominent in Norway in some ways, but that people will run out as they're doing right now already with ketamine and uh, start making a lot of money uh, by the careless administration of these drugs. And I think uh, you know, that's very much how the pharmaceutical industry took over psychiatry. And to my mind, psychiatry lost its soul in its, its uh, marriage to the drug industry. I think psychiatry has largely become a bunch of drug pushers, but we have lost the mind. And here we have a chance to reclaim the mind but boy, am I worried about um, profits and that sort of stuff will really get in the way of creating optimal healing environments. And then uh, you're, you're uh, specifically uh, thinking about uh, shortening the, the psychotherapeutic uh, package and just giving the drug uh, without therapist with proper training and without exactly. proper yeah, preparation and integration. What you see right now in, in ketamine, for example, is that uh, people I know have gotten ketamine in the mail. I know somebody who was a very wonderful person who became very depressed. He got ketamine without supervision. His wife had just left him. 
He lived, lived in an apartment by himself and he killed himself after, after drinking ketamine. Um, I think you know, it's, what's fascinating about our study is that we had no adverse side effects, which really surprised me given how painful and intense my personal experience was. It sounds like yours was along the same lines. Um, and I think it would be, I can't imagine having done this journey without people who I trusted and felt safe with uh, doing that. And I'm really worried that people will do this by themselves or with friends or in unprotected situations uh, because you really open up Pandora's box. And when you open up that box, you need to help have people who really help you to contain it for, for you. And uh, part of it is that, that makes it very expensive. As you know, the study that you're doing is enormously expensive because we uh, pay two therapists an enormous amount of money to be there all the time. Uh, my organization, the Trauma Research Foundation, is very uh, interested in uh, the fact that this whole trauma field started uh, with lay people. Uh, it started in the feminist movement uh, with in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where people wrote a book called Our Body, Ourselves. When I started in this field, uh, we had peer support groups for uh, veterans who did much better with each other than professionals did. Um, most of that peer support is gone, but I would be very interested in uh, having people actually trained as lay people to, in return for getting this treatment, giving this treatment to people who they have uh, they, who receive it after them and to really get it out of the the money world of paying for therapy and insurance companies etc etc but this will be a, a major challenge for our field mm-hmm. yes that's a, a cultural problem as well uh, as if suffering has been specialized into a certain field and there you, you're going to get fixed yeah. professionalized yeah. right so yeah. the 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 local community doesn't ha- really have a role in supporting the fellow man or, or woman well the local community of course is still there but most psychiatrists and psychologists don't give any credit to the local community and mm-hmm. i think we need to be much more sensitive that uh, therapists and psychologists are only a small part of the people who can help people to get better uh, if you have a relatively small part to play in this and mm-hmm. there's all kind of other possibilities like 12, 12 step programs uh, mm. people can find healing uh, where money is not involved right yeah that, that's interesting uh, because of course the, maybe there's a sense of communities actually dissolving with the amount and increases of uh, loneliness like the uk have their own minister of loneliness now and um oh. and uh, we're kind of living in our own islands uh, yeah. so to speak uh, do you think uh, MDMA, or rather the, the movement uh, with the psychedelic research and this form of thinking in terms of yeah, humanism and, and compassion for all, could that play a role in the mitigation of this development? It's a very interesting question. Um, it's a very good question to ask ourselves. Uh, is, is it possible? Well, I was certainly impressed that it came out in our conference last week, is that um, my own team is a team of disparate people from different different backgrounds and how deeply uh, connected we are with each other and how this work makes you very loving towards the people you work with. I've seen uh, very little uh, the stuff you usually see in academic environments of people getting competitive and hierarchical. Uh, I've not come across it very much. uh, up to now, it's been a very healthy, generous culture. I, <laughs> I hope it's human beings, what they are, it's sort of almost too good to believe that this can persist over time. But, but I think MDMA has the potential of actually contributing to what you're exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we'll see. Human nature being what it is, <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. Well, um, 
So uh, I would like to just uh, uh, rewind a little bit what you said about, you know, uh, the importance of uh, having an appropriate frame for doing this. Uh, opening a Pandora's box is important for listeners who, you know, uh, may think, uh, hey, let's take some MDMA. And also, you know, when uh, when this is uh, coming for psychiatry uh, um, and um, many doctors, I think, are, are still thinking of this mainly as, you know, uh, psychopharmacological treatment in a way that there is a, a huge um, you know challenge in communicating uh, this uh, the, the psychotherapy part of it or or you know the the, the inner work that needs to be done uh, to our friends uh, in, the, in the medical field um, that's a cultural a cultural shift huh yeah yes right and and um, so, but one one criticism is also you said opening Pandora's box. But do we open? Do MDMA open up too fast, too quickly? Is it is it like uh, is it safe? Is it advisable? Uh, have you seen, for example, adverse events for people having opened up too much too soon and not being able to, you know, repress it as functional? Uh, See, actually, there's two issues here. But I find troubling is that now we are. Uh, talking everywhere about how great MDMA is, but it's still an illegal substance. And I get emails every day, where can I get MDMA treatment? And I have to say, it will not be legal for another two years. So right now we go too slowly. Huh? And so then the question is, what will happen if it goes too fast? And we'll, we'll lose control. So that's a question that we need to pay attention to and be very cognizant of. But you and I cannot control that. Uh, we can just um, put our stuff out there. Uh, as, as I said before, in our study, uh, the, the map study of all these different sites, there was not a single serious adverse effect. Uh, but that's really because the protocol was so careful. Um, I'm sure that if you start opening this up and become careless, that bad things will happen and so and i'm also very worried that one bad experience may stop this whole process and so uh, let's for god's sake be very very careful for now so that we don't stop the legalization process but let's also be very careful after that so we don't open up too much yeah that's right yeah. that relates uh, also of course to the the difficulty and challenge of implementation um, there are countless examples of uh, treatments faring well in research but then translating that to the everyday uh, clinical uh, reality um, that's a whole different story and uh, you, you mentioned of course the the community within the research setting being yeah. generous generous uh, compassionate um, yeah what would happen when this is going to be practiced yeah. Um, and, how, and how to implement it in a manner that, um, yeah, they maintain the integrity of the treatment, right? Yeah, I think, you know, you should do, do some MDMA therapy with your Minister of Health and the people who make the policy so you can really think very deeply about how to implement this on a, on a policy level. Uh, and I think the policy people who make the rules should have the experience to know what they're dealing with also. <laughs> Maybe in Norway that's okay to do. In the US, I'm not so sure. Go ahead, Eva. So uh, another criticism is, or, you know, this uh, leap from research to clinical practices, uh, you know, things like the Hawthorne effect, or, you know, uh, this is new and the people involved is really engaged and, uh, will this affect? Do you think can can part of these great numbers that we're now seeing, you know, can it be relatable to what we've seen earlier, like things uh, in, uh, performing very well in research, and then after time the effects fade? So it's a good question to ask. Of course, we won't know. It's something to be on the alert for. Uh, it's quite possible uh, as people loosen their standards and their training. Uh, it's very, very worth paying attention to. Mm -hmm. But I must say, for example, uh, so my first uh, entry into effective non-conventional trauma treatments was EMDR. 
um, which is about 20 years ago now. And I must say that EMDR does as well today in my hands and my colleagues as it did 20 years ago. I have not really seen it not work for people over time. So uh, if we stay careful, it will probably hold its power. All right. So how are we doing on, on time, uh, Bessel? We're, we're, I have an appointment in two in two minutes, actually. All right. <laughs> so uh, just for me to say, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, you have a lot of interesting uh, points and interesting experience and, and, and data to, to show for. And we're really uh, excited about the future and uh, whether this uh, treatment can reach as many people uh, as possible who, who needs them. Right. I'm delighted you guys are doing it and bringing it to Norway. It's wonderful, actually. Yes, I would also like to thank you for your involvement in this and all, also the all the other stuff you've been uh, you've been working on for all these years. Uh, so really, thank a big thanks uh, from our hearts to you and uh, and uh, looking forward to cooperate in the future, maybe on some right. exciting Good to program. see each other in person. Yes, not to say the least. <laughs> great. Okay. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. All okay. the best. All bye the best. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, uh, Ivar, so we have had some uh, time to digest this experience with uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, just wondering, what, what are your afterthoughts uh, after hearing what he had to say? Well, so I remember immediately after the interview, I was just struck by how powerful of a testimony this is uh, from a person who has been really close to you know, the trauma field for a long time. Um, been shaping it partly also and um, who's been also very close to this treatment and seen seen it in action so how he describes it is is quite stunning and that's also one of the words he uses so yeah it really made an impression on me mm -hmm. that part of it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. don't you think as well that he he really used quite strong words yeah he did he did and uh the, the comparison he made with all the different uh, other types of treatment he's been involved with, uh, involved with throughout the years, it was uh, kind of, yeah, he, he underscored it quite uh, emphatically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, in one way, it, it makes me in a way glad. It gives hope. It's, it's kind of a confirmation when you're involved in this field and you, you share his sentiments and his appreciations of this. And, at the same time, it's it's also a bit, I don't know, I'm also afraid that it can be off-putting, you know, because this is a typical criticism that comes that, you know, it's it's a, this hallelujah, uh, how you call it, standing in Norwegian. Uh, right. You know, the hallelujah, what is it, standing in English? Yeah, yeah, like it's, it's uh, praise the Lord. Yeah, it's like uh, praise the Lord, uh, standing again <laughs> no but <clears throat> i think people get the idea um but at the same time i think it's, it's really important that people speak the truth you know and i don't think there's any doubt that this is his experience and it's also mine uh, and it's the experience of thousands of others that it's really a strong medicine and um, so um, and the numbers are you know catching up on the clinical impression and giving more and more support to it. And that's the beauty of, of things when, you know, the clinical experiences from, you know, the, the old days before it was forbidden and, and also from the underground community and also what is seen from the modern era of research into this compound and this treatment modality really starts to, to, to align with hard numbers. Um, mm -hmm with bigger RCTs and uh, also, you know, when we start looking at behind the numbers on the experiences, qualitative, qualitative research and also the subscales that he's referring to mm. beyond PTSD symptom reduction, then it's, it's also a nice confirmation of uh, that, that it's not just like the praise of the Lord, uh, people uh, being misled by some something that seems very convincing but it really mm -hmm. 
that's important as well. It, it is reassuring that uh, the, the numbers add up and also that um, that they really apply uh, quite the methodological rigor in their studies. Uh, yeah. And and also another point is, is how they are non-profit based. You know, yes. so many studies of different uh, treatments and, and especially in medicine, of course, are, are funded by people with interests and it doesn't require much of a study, uh, much of studies for a new drug to be approved actually. So I think that is also kind of reassuring. You, you, and you mentioned these subscales and, and the, the, um, the research um, he was referring to with uh, the, the, the subscales with the, the self-compassion scores and the alexithemia, which is quite interesting uh, in particular because uh, we know from other research that these constructs and these phenomena are really related to all kinds of psychological disturbances, right? Across the board, one's inability to feel one's emotions, the lexithemia, uh, being a quite a huge predictor of treatment failure, actually, right? And, and this uh, ability to have self-compassion in, in meeting suffering also uh, has been shown to be quite a protective factor uh, to, to not develop further uh, disorders or, or, or suffering or whatever we should should call it so that was actually quite intriguing yeah i totally agree uh, it gives it gives a lot of hope that it can be a, a nice adjunct uh, uh, in other uh, also conditions than ptsd of course if you can do something with like a self-treatment people he said that you know it's this is about who i am and people can start relating to themselves very deeply and communicate also uh, both, both having a connection for themselves and, and communicate it to, to someone else is, you know, it's in the core of being human in the world, and, and so it, it really gives a lot of hope. And but I should, we have also inquired about the specific numbers in these scales, and unfortunately we haven't gotten them yet. But maybe we'll, we'll add them to to the written interview later when when we have them. But uh, until now, if we we just have to take him at face value uh, that the numbers are gi gigantic <laughs> and so uh, yeah so the, the second maybe main thing that I, uh, I, I kind of was left with after the interview was that he quite rapidly he he, he leaves the you know the, the, the clinical <laughs> the world of clinical research and symptomatology and developing treatments within medicine to uh, talking about implications for people having this experience on a societal level. Mm -hmm. And um, even though I, I, I hear him and understand him when he speaks to, for example, that he, he wonders what this will do, like he imagines there will be forces uh, against uh, this kind of treatment because it, it alters the perceptions or the, the values of people and specifically in a direction that can go against capitalism like uh, people will not be willing to put so much effort into work anymore and be more into loving each other <laughs> <laughs> and you know i think it's a very like to me it sounds like a very sympathetic uh, you know uh, uh, way to or consequence or uh, how do you say uh, in Norwegian again, you have Effect. to learn Norwegian, guys. Fact, <laughs> it wasn't that complicated. <laughs> um, yeah, but at the same time, it's it's this uh, slight un uncomfort or discomfort um, when you politicize these things. Because to me, I would like to you know leave that aside. And if if, if there is something like that going on, then it can go on, but I wouldn't um, empathize, emphasize it too much in this stage we're in, because you know uh, when these things were uh, politicized last time, it it lead, led to a backlash, and I don't want to see that happen again on behalf of my patients. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what what are your thoughts on that particular. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It can be be uh, dangerous to to uh, get into that kind of rhetoric uh, 
at this stage, even, even though I can understand what he mean. I was just thinking about the, like Freud um, for some reason, like uh, maybe love isn't really diametrically opposed to work. Like he said, uh, yeah, life should be work and love, you know. Um, but um, sure. I, I am wondering uh, um, if if it is could be even more helpful to at this stage just focus on on the raw data and the raw experiences of people and and to have the main goal to alleviate psychological suffering in the first hand and what happens politically that that's its own thing it happens organically and uh, yeah. then again i can understand why he uh, he would uh, speak about this uh, because th this uh, treatment has been so politicized in the past and and there has been a lot of uh, misgivings and, and and forces against it so i can yeah, and, and uh, <clears throat> i think also it's good to mention that uh, of course Bessel he is not an activist at all he he is concerned with the raw data and the clinical you know everyday realities of his patients and uh oh uh, so he's he's just referring to this as he's aware of this dimension and he's a bit worried about it so i guess like us <laughs> but we don't want that dimension to come in, come in the way so so to speak so uh, but uh, and he's but he he's upfront enough to just mention it you know where maybe maybe i would tend to just leave that aside so but i think it's generally i think it's a good idea to just be to be able to name or to say to speak the truth right so so in that regard it shouldn't be controversial at all to to mention that and to be a bit worried about it okay. i would also like to reflect just a couple of minutes more uh, before we end this uh, this after talk after this great interview with some of my personal experiences uh, having MDMA uh, therapy myself, um, because what I definitely what I saw was this uh, some trends towards workaholism in me that wasn't like completely new, but I could see the dynamics behind putting too much effort into work and struggling with a you know work and private life balance uh, for a long time, and also seeing you know. Uh, the compulsions that drove parts of this drive I've had, you know, coming from a place of anxiety. I mean, some of my engagement is, of course, just from, you know, this healthy place of, uh, but, but part of it has also been driven from anxiety and regulating it um, mm. like any other compulsion. And I think, so I can relate to what he said that being less uh, preoccupied with work and more with love. That, that was for sure one of my main experiences. But that being said, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean, you know, I'm hanging around in, in some park eating flowers or putting them in my hair or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also read, you know, this myth about if the hippies, like some of them, of course, to drop out of society was a big thing. But if you look at modern data, people have taken psychedelics, they tend to be very involved and engaged in society, you know, more than uh, the average person so i really don't think there is a threat there. Mm -hmm. i think that it's just a potential that people could maybe invest their energies in more healthy directions and not been so driven by you know i heard some anthropologists talking about if if somebody came from another culture from another time to study us in our western modern culture they would really pay a lot of attention to this ritual that we call work <laughs> and how much meaning we've been able to put into this ritual um and it's really a you know a, a astonishing thing you know it's we are so used to it but that work has this big 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 place and work as you know instead of religion you know we put we find meaning in in work and hmm. and uh, also you know two people in the, the both the father and the mother in the family supposed to work and kids uh, in kindergarten and so forth. So I think it's maybe it's, it, there is an imbalance there. Uh, oh. We put too much into it, and and if if 
these medicines or if MDMA helps us really connect on a deep level with ourselves, maybe some of that imbalance will be adjusted. But I don't think it will be dramatic for capitalism. I think it will prevail. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. So maybe maybe the work won't be less, but maybe people are drawn or attached to different kinds of work which they find more meaningful. Right. Yeah, and that will drain them less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just uh, reminded me of some criticism against uh, meditation uh, as a fear. If you if you meditate, you you will uh, detach from the world and you will turn passive in terms of uh, the suffering of the world, for instance, because you would you would just uh, non-reactively uh, detach from it all, right? Uh, but w- which goes against what people actually experience, right? Because there's not uh, an opposition necessarily between being able to non-reactively uh, observe what's happening in your life and attaching from society, right? Often it is actually the opposite that happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm. You can touch base on a deeper level a lot, a less reactive level, which are, and the reactive level is much more conditioned, conditioned. Uh, mm-hmm. From our, you know, uh, both uh, the microcosmoses we've been living in in our families and all that, but also the larger culture, and uh, it it makes it possible to actually take a more personal and and uh, conscious decision of how to relate to to these things. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So, like in not not being slaves to our experiences, which are still lingering on in our bodies, and not being slaves to the monkey mind. Right. <laughs> so maybe that should be the closing words. I, I would like just briefly at the end to, to, to say that, you know, my involvement in this field and, and also I'm sure Basil founded Corpse is really about the simple thing that you sit with people in suffering every day and you're so glad and it's so profound when you reach someone and you reach their family and the generations that will come after. And it's such a, you know, it's such a fulfilling experience to be able to reach and be witness to healing processes. Uh, but then again, how painful, you know, to all those we do not reach with existing methods. And obviously we need, you know, this, this menu of different treatments that can meet different people at different stages of their healing process and development. And uh, sure looks like MDMASIS psychotherapy will be uh, one such uh, avenue uh, uh, that will be important for at least some people. So, yeah, go, go. Hope people will, uh, you know, look, look more into this modality, get more knowledge about it, and possibly support it. Yeah. All right. Bye bye.